0: We got Parker Calvert, baby! Hey, hey. Hey, dude. Good to see you on the Ted Jones World Podcast. Guys, so uh, Parker, uh, founder of NYC Culture Club, which we'll get to, but I met you at the artist versus writers game in uh, East Hampton, the 75th annual, bro. So you and your brother at Superstar, your brother hit a home run. I hit the home run.
1: You hit the home run. Let's go. <laughs> My dog. The
0: entire day, I was like, oh, I got to hit a home run here. I didn't end up hitting a home run. I think I went two you for had, four, though. Had
1: a good a, a good rip on one, it was uh, yeah, 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 I
0: definitely did. I was like, but, who's this
1: guy? But you hit the home run, dude you were the star of the show,
0: man. You were great. They wrote about you in the paper and Everyone everything. still
1: thinks it's my brother. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Even me, dude.
0: Um, we're going to get you a little bit in here. Cool. Um, you might be one of our taller guests that we have had on our show. My... One of my friends, who's a comedian, uh, Tobin Miller. He's like six foot seven, though. What are you, six five? Six nah, seven? six three. Six three? Yeah. You, you have a bigger presence, yeah, though. Man. Yeah, you
1: know. What can I? Say? Nice, dude. So uh, <laughs> let
0: let's get to it, man. Um, you've got a lot of things going on in your life, art wise, and then um, just New York City buzz wise. So let's talk about the uh, Culture Club, your art yeah. club.
1: So back in 2021, my brother Clayton and I started a nonprofit gallery at the World Trade Center. And the whole idea was to create an open space for artists, uh, an exhibition platform where we don't take a commission. We don't charge a fee. Uh Uh, We we basically have our curators help staff the show is the only real expectation of them aside from a high quality show. Um, And so that's been we're on our 22nd exhibition in two and a half years there. And uh, that's been kind of our baby. Nice.
0: So in terms of like getting artists to your space, how does that, how does that work? Like you talk about events, like, is it just basically like from... 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. at night people will come through and check out the art and then all the artists are there How does that that what's
1: nice is that the uh, the space itself is, you know, you can walk by it 24 hours a day So no matter what we you know We can have people able to view shows in terms of like how we meet artists and how we like bring it all together Uh, it's usually word of mouth. Uh, people just send submissions We have some different nonprofits that we've partnered with so uh, in the shows that we've done, we've had a pretty wide range of shows, uh, everything from paintings to sculpture, photography, dance, uh, musical performances, everything in between. We've really tried to create a platform um, that really just is about the art and not yeah. so much about like the market of the art.
0: What was your original, like? What, what's your background? What did you go to college uh, for and then high school? <laughs> well, we'll start from the beginning.
1: Uh, I grew up in New York City. Um, I went to Bard High School, Early College on Houston Street. And... That enabled me to graduate from George Washington University by the time I was 19, and I got my BA in Econ. What? Yeah. So.
0: Graduating 19. Did you feel like you jumped the gun a little bit? Did you oh, yeah. miss like... little
1: doogie house. Yeah, okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but did you, when you were in
0: college, did you feel like you were like, in place like or full, what? I felt
1: like a full-blown adult when I was like 12. Oh, you know? damn. Living okay. in the city, I think really just like, I, don't, totally, I didn't miss man. anything.
0: So I grew up in the city too. I moved here when I was six weeks old. I always give like the little Jersey sprinkle. So moved here <laughs> when I was six weeks. And then uh, I went to a friend's seminary downtown. I'm not oh, sure cool. if you're familiar. Yeah, yeah. And then I went to professional children's school because I was like a traveling tennis player. So uh, if I needed to leave on like a Thursday, they'd send me the homework Friday, Monday. But you talk about like growing up in the city. Like, bro, we grew up so fast. Like I knew... I know at least 10 kids that were sober by the age of 21. You know what I mean? Like, they're drinking from the 17th. I'm sure you do too.
1: Well, people are always like, what's it like growing up here? And I'm always like, well, half my friends turned out amazing. Yeah,
0: dude. So true. So (laughs) true. It's really, it's like like taking the subway by ourselves when you're like 12, 13, like going all over the place. but yeah, it forces you to really grow up faster being in the city. So you must have been into art since you were uh, oh, super yeah. young, right? So we
1: went to middle school on 84th and Park. And so we'd play football next to the Met in the Temple of Dinder, you know, and basically our football would hit the glass and we'd go running from the guards. So, oh, right. you know, it's always been kind of in our DNA and just uh, my dad actually originally moved to New York in 1982. Uh, and was modeling and acting, and so I kind of, you know, watched him in the acting world, and, you know, he ended up kind of, when he had a family, that took precedence, of course, I think being an actor in New York City is hard enough as it is, Um, and so I watched that, and I thought, wow, like, isn't it awesome to be creative, to be uh, passionate about creativity, and it was always fostered. You know. Do you like comedy at all? Love comedy. Yeah? Yeah, I actually uh trained at U C B. Oh, let's uh, go,
0: dude. I got the Herald. You see the sign uh, right oh, there on yeah.
1: the uh on the refrigerator? I used to play poker with those guys back when I was in high school. Oh yeah? Yeah. I hope I'm not blowing up anybody's <laughs> No.
0: Definitely not. <laughs> definitely not, dude. So you took uh U C B from what? Yeah, dude. One
1: 301, and then I didn't do four oh one. I just okay. it. It was I think I don't remember what the impetus of not doing 401 was, uh-huh. but like it was awesome every step of the way. and so, I was like,
0: <laughs> So March of 2020, I was supposed to have my 401 class show and then I was going to start getting involved in like the couple days a week or whatever. And the pandemic kind of definitely forced me to focus more on stand up. Like, I haven't really gotten back into improv just because in the city it's kind of limited. I hear that they're opening up a Second City in Williamsburg within the next few months. So Maybe I'll check that out in terms of, like, performances and stuff. But, uh, yeah, just stand-up comedy has gotten a lot bigger since the, you know, since the pandemic came back. Maybe we can organize a Ted Jones comedy show at, like, uh, one of your galleries. Yeah, let's
1: talk about it. That'd be dope. We're always open to these things. That'd be dope, dude. Nice.
0: So, growing up, though, uh, in the city, like, what was your first real recognition of being like, wow – Art is fascinating. I might want to do this. And what do you think about
1: NFTs, too? Oh, it's, it's two good questions. I'll Part, touch on the yeah. more interesting one first. Yes. <laughs> so uh, growing up in the city, I, I was obsessed with the trains. And so I would look out the windows in the front. And one of the first like artists that I really loved was a street artist named Revs, Cost and Revs, C-O-S-T and R-E-V-S. And Revs would go in the subway tunnels, whitewash a whole wall, and write journal entries. And Cost would take the big rollers. And these guys kind of revolutionized... Just the idea of like cool locations where you could get your work on like Canal Street hanging off ten feet off of a building kind of stuff and so I was always just like fascinated by that and then thinking about like thinking about it, I feel like the subways were always where I saw graffiti and so graffiti for me as a kid was like the most fascinating thing because i I, I have a bit of like you know photographic memory but also OCD so if I see something time and time again I'm like, oh, I recognized it and so for me it was like a very kind of earnest uh like growing up in new york seeing it everywhere and then like you know of course going to museums and my brother i'll say this he studied art history he's got the most eidetic art history knowledge of anyone i've ever met he can hold his weight with anybody scholars from all around he's Tied. just he loves it he knows it he eats breathes sleeps it he had mentors who were you know octogenarians who were geniuses of what's art. that uh 80 year olds Acting Nigeria, yeah, you gotta have fancy. Oh ways my god, things, dude, you know. I love it! Yeah, 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 right, right, right. Of course, yeah.
0: a sommelier while you're yeah. looking at the art and shit. Yeah. Wait, dude, did you ever get involved in graffiti though? Uh, or no, you just like it from record, afar. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the record, so you better watch yourself. I never did nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the cooler uh, graffiti, I guess, types was uh, on a uh, Bowery. What what number street Bowery was that? The big townhouse. Do You know what I'm talking about.
1: So. There was there was that big uh, there was that big like bank that was like yeah, graffiti I, all yes, over it and yes. it became supreme.
0: That's what I mean. Um, yes. But
1: the Barry was like one of the iconic art locations in New York City lore and history for sure. Isn't it funny how those artists
0: had what like three thousand foot art studios oh and they're paying nothing, and now like it's probably luxury development or those apartments are probably worth have, fifty thousand a month. Friends, like dad's
1: that. literally squatted in their apartment in Soho, and that's how yeah. they got it. Oh, okay. And they
0: took it over and now it's like still stabilized. They're no longer there. Well, right. But you got to do what you got to do in New York, yeah, man. Yeah.
1: Where'd you go to college? Uh, George Washington.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, you talked yeah. about that. And uh, when you were at
1: George Washington, though, did you, were you an art history major? I actually, so because of the high school, like the program of coming in with a bunch of credits. Yeah. I applied as a freshman. I lived in freshman housing. And the first week there, the advisor was like, hey, uh, we can't just ignore these 60 credits. We're going to give you 52 of them. So I called my mom. I was like, "Mom, let's do this. Like, I'm gonna do three years. I'm gonna cruise through college." And my mom, bro, but you
0: you wanted to do three years, and you were already there early. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so hold on. So I tell
1: my mom my plan, and so she's got her doctorate from Columbia in education, cool, and she's just uh, a lifelong educator. And so she was always pushing us, just education at the forefront. And so she was like, oh, no, you're going to finish in two years and take summer courses. And I was like, all right, <laughs> yeah, that's what we're doing. So I had back to back to back 18 credit semesters. I took summer courses at City College to make up. And because of the credits I came in with, I basically had a choice of two majors if I wanted to finish in two years. If my mom wanted me to finish in two years. Yeah. So I went ahead and did it. And I, the choice was sociology or economics. I was far more interested in sociology but the whole point of it was always to be a backup plan. So originally, I, I mean, I love acting to this day, but that was what I wanted to do when I was 17, 18, 19, get into acting, get into filmmaking, um, and in a, in a weird circuitous way, you know, it's uh, I feel like I'm getting closer to, you know, more of that narrative filmmaking kind of point in my life Okay. Um, because photography took hold. Uh, it was really awesome. I got an opportunity to work in fashion and had never worked with a flash or a strobe or a radio trigger. I had no idea what any of those things were. And so when I got the opportunity, they're like, have you ever shot in a studio? It's like, yeah, Yeah,
0: you're like, duh. Yeah,
1: no, no doubt. You'll figure it out later. <laughs> now you'd be like, yeah, no cap. <laughs> <laughs> I swear I'm not mid (laughs) to
0: to get back to uh, what we were talking about earlier. NFTs. Did you think that that was going to be like a big part or maybe in the future it will be, but did you think like a year and a half ago is going to be a big part of your uh, installations and culture club?
1: I thought that it was actually going to be a thing for me Uh on the, like uh, you know, saleable side of art. I think, Personally, I think a lot of like NFTs, you know, kind of will end up becoming uh, part of like the provenance of things. So like when you trade it, it'll be like a deed to a house. Uh That's like where I see it more practically involved because like I love digital art. I love visual, like video art. I love all of it. But as someone who's made a lot of video art, it's hard to get eyes on video art. It's hard to sell video art. It's hard to place video art. So, you know, in the sense of the hierarchy of art, in a lot of ways, it's like painting, sculpture, or like King. And then photography kind of gets lessered.
0: <laughs> What's your favorite museum in the city? Maybe oh, people city? listening, that they, they um, should go to this museum.
1: Uh, you know, it's funny because I have this conversation with my brother a lot. And it's, you know, you can't really go wrong. He would probably tell you the Frick. And right now, the Frick is under renovation. So until it's actually back in the building, it's not the same experience. Uh, the Morgan Library... On 35th in Madison. That's an extraordinary museum. Ah,
0: underrated, maybe, right?
1: Oh my God, that's a sleeper. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I love that place. I, I kind agree.
0: of I lived on uh, 37th in Madison. It was like my first apartment with a roommate oh. and, uh, out of college. Cool. So I'd walk by there all the time and always be like, ah, what's going on in there? So Bard uh, High School—that was an an artsy high school, correct? Oh my god! Okay, definitely. so I like I freestyle a bunch of my boys, and one of my go-to lines is, "I'm artsy, but I didn't go to Bard." You know, that was like so. I, <laughs> sprinkle that in, bro. Well, because
1: that Bard College really is more of that yeah, reputation. Okay, but, okay. So the early high, the high school early college program—you get a degree from Bard College and associates. So I had never even been to Bard College, and I have an associates from uh, there. Interesting.
0: What did your day-to-day look like in terms of? being passionate about art would you go to museums a bunch
1: you know what's interesting i think i was a lot more passionate about like activities at large so like i'm a very active person from the time i get up to yeah hitting bombs
0: during softball (laughs) yeah just like
1: boom 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 (laughs) i played sports year-round baseball football basketball soccer tennis golf like i just love sports football in the city just like with friends oh you know i I played in like the asphalt green little league nice Got you know, should have gotten the MVP. Yeah, me. yeah. So for
0: me, I uh, I played. Uh, t- College tennis at UConn, oh, and when I won the MVP when I was twelve years old, in Peter Peter Stuyvesant Little League baseball, I had to decide at that point. It was like between baseball and tennis. I chose tennis because I just hated when people in the outfield or when outfielders would miss the easy pop up, and I'd be pitching. I'd be like, "Bro, I wouldn't have missed that." So I just go to tennis, and I'd rather everything be my fault, yeah, or yeah. you know, or good on that other side.
1: I like that. I, that's one of the things I actually really love about tennis is uh-huh. that it's really all you. Yeah. You know, I mean, the other person you can let them fail and un force errors are your best friend Bye. yeah exactly you know i feel like it's one of those things As like a achievement goes i'm a huge serena williams fan huge roger federer fan did like, you go to the open this year i didn't this year but i used to work at the us open as a kid what'd you do I, ball I, boy I, now i wish uh, you, <laughs> i worked at the lacoste store when i was sixteen. oh uh-huh, nice i got dude. them to hire me i saw like an ad on craigslist and my mom Sick. was like you should get a summer job i was like all right Oh,
0: and, and, like, the two weeks was good for summer. When I went to the
1: interview, they were like, yeah, well, they were like, we don't hire under 18. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah. But
0: you like, but I look I like, yeah, like, come 18.
1: on. I was the same height. And I just were, I've never, like, this is such a funny story now that I think about it, because, like, I went into this interview with this guy, Seth. He was awesome. He was super cool. And uh, I sat down knowing that they didn't hire under 18, but I was like, I got to do this anyway. I want to work at the U.S. Open. And they set up, like, a little shop inside of Arthur Ashe. So it's basically, like, I could get free clothes, I could like, you know, get or a discount whatever and then get to go to the US Open. And so I go to the interview and I, everything, it's a group interview and everything's going well. And like little 16 year old me just like thought to crack a joke with, and they're like, so like, what are the things your former employee didn't like you used to do? And I had just told them that the only work experience I had was tutoring. And I was like, yeah, well, like the mom of the kids I work for, she really hates when I show up to work drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody in the interview looked at me and I was like, I'm just kidding. I'm like, You're 16. <laughs> You're like, she loved it when I was drunk. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that,
1: was it Lacoste though?
0: Was that like right around when Andy Roddick was yeah, repping Lacoste? Yeah, 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 is that that's probably one of the I feel like that really uh, drove Lacoste, and then because now uh, Djokovic is
1: well, playing with Lacoste. One of the most awesome things about that experience was that I just had this amazing access to all of the practice rounds. I used to go uh, yeah, every day. I yeah. snuck into a Federer match on the main court. First time I saw him play, he double faulted. I was like, oh, okay. If this guy's double yeah, you faulted. Saw, then,
0: yeah, you saw a solar eclipse. The guy never double faulted. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> hilarious, man. What is your, um, I know I talked about your day to day when you were younger, but what about now? Like what you run in here. I know you have a short window to do the pod and I appreciate you for coming. Oh yeah, in, of for course. Sure. But, um, like what, yeah, what does your day to day look like?
1: Um, you know, I would say every day is different, but it has components that help keep me, uh, in place, I would say. So, you know, I wake up, I, I love coffee, I meditate, you know, I stretch, I'm big on stretching, I'm big on mobility, I love uh, Qigong, yoga, I love mindfulness, you know, things that like help me get through the chaos of my day. Yeah. Um. The 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 other side of my schedule uh-huh. is like... I mean, a typical day this week has been three straight eighteen hour days in a row of like nonstop, not even it, barely eating. Is that like a <laughs> is that like a
0: good amount of travel, like to places in Chelsea, West Village, Soho?
1: If you put like a like a GoPro on me or like a tracker, I would say, but for like delivery guys and taxi drivers, there's far there's probably fewer people doing as many like out you know back forth, up down, left right because I live uptown. Uh-huh. Our gallery's downtown. <laughs> I bike everywhere, city bike. Yeah, I was going to ask how I you get around. I take the I take the train. What area do you think is the best
0: for art galleries now? You know, because we have a lot of West Chelsea, Soho, yeah. West Village, and then down there, uh, World Trade Center. I I feel like
1: Chelsea, what I like about Chelsea is that it's such a clustering effect. So, like, you have all these galleries that, like, every artist in the world would kill to be a part of. And then so that brings out all of those people who are like the young hopefuls who have that great energy to be around and who are also like driven and motivated. And so I feel like in Chelsea, you come across really like interesting people and a lot of my friends would be at the opening. So that's where I'd say like most of the openings I go to are, but... Love the Lower East Side. Tribeca's got a really big push right now. Of course, the Financial District. The, yes, uh, of course, the World Trade but, Center. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were the first gallery down in the in the World Trade Center, and yeah. since they've opened up a, a gallery down the hall, and then there's like a three or four new cultural projects uh, down the hall as well. So, I feel like we were fortunate enough to like get in with with amazing people who are like Westfield is super supportive. Silverstein yeah. they're super supportive, and like just having people like that who. There's a lot of developers we've reached out to to try to like get them to kind of come on board and do stuff because New York, as a New Yorker, I'm super passionate about why do we have all this empty space? Like what are we going to so do with much. all this space? Yeah. Like we need to do something with this right. space. Right.
0: Especially in like the office realm.
1: Yeah. And so Silverstein's actually redesigning a number of like office buildings to, to kind of retrofit to homes. But that's one of the big problems developers are facing is because an office building has an entirely different infrastructure. So in a lot of ways, it's almost like you might as well just start from scratch because sometimes it's so difficult to convert like these mu- these like big floors that are designed for desks everywhere, yeah. and not with like plumbing and electrical and all of that. So, um, but yeah, to, to tie it back in, like the so like working with these like the, de- the developers and like working down there, it's just like a dream come true because these people move mountains. They literally were responsible for the most incredible construction site in, in history. You know, going down there, I'm constantly floored. Yeah, I basically kiss the ground whenever I go to the studio we have.
0: I remember I was there maybe like two and a half years ago. And it seemed like one of the first things that was done was that mural kind of like in between like all the World Trade Centers. You know what I'm talking about? I
1: probably know the muralist. I know there are friends on our floors and they're just like the community of artists down there is vast. Uh, There's dozens in in different towers working on different projects. There's just so many uh, creative resources down there. Um, Right now, the show in the gallery at the Culture Club, just a little plug, uh, is with Silver Art Projects. And basically, Silver Art Projects is the art residency in Tower 4. And what's an art residency? Uh, right? It's where artists get free studio space, a stipend and an awesome space on the 28th floor of tower four. So what does that,
0: what does that look like as an artist? I come in, I have my own canvas, own paint. Or... Yeah.
1: You typically would set up your uh, operation. So art this residency, I believe it's somewhere around like 20 to 30 artists on the floor. So really? they all have, I would guess maybe like, 500 to 800 square feet okay and they wow. basically are you know stanchioned off with like a big wall for their paintings uh-huh. or for their photos or for you know their sculptures and they go there and work and they can you know come and go as they please and just yeah. utilize the space and the resources so
0: now i know you guys are non so how does like how does an artist apply to get that space and to get that uh, gig like so
1: that's Silver Art Projects, which they have an open call each year, and they get thousands of uh, submissions, and they just take the best ones. And the they most just talented, and they have or... a but they have a really good selection committee. So they have some pretty prominent people in the art world, like Swiss Beats and Hank Willis Thomas, and a few other like really like knockout people uh, that are on that selection committee. And their director uh, Gregory Thornberry and their their you know their team there with Lily, like they're awesome. Like they're very. Um, motivated, capable, you know, just very passionate, you know, and I think they look at all the submissions for sure. They take it all very seriously. I know, you know, it's like anything with these platforms. It's, we all wish there was more of it to go around. You know what I mean? Like if you could get 50 artists in that space, wouldn't that be awesome? If you could get a hundred artists and double the space, wouldn't that be awesome?
0: People aren't really going into the office every day and maybe more office buildings have just like vacant spaces. Yeah. seems like this is an opportunity for.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we've been really trying to lead the charge with, uh, you know, just pressuring these organizations that have the space and saying, look, it benefits nobody to have them empty. Yeah. You know, really, maybe you get a a tax abatement or some write-off because it's a loss for you, perhaps. But like, it's also a loss for everybody. It's a loss for the community. It's a loss for New York City at large. And so, you know, I have, we have the fortune of having seen New York in the 90s. And to me, I think that's why I love New York so much and why I'm so excited about really like post-pandemic New York. Because it really felt like in the pandemic, we had a bit of a like a stop where it was like, wait a second, what's going on here? You know, like we all had to reevaluate daily life or the businesses all reevaluated. A lot of people had to drop rents and let in new businesses. So that through that cataclysm and, you know, I can't stress that enough. I don't think, you know, it's hard to find the positive in something like COVID. But at the end of the day, it also like changed New York in a way that I felt brought people closer together. Like it created opportunities that weren't there before. So ultimately, it's kind of like all my friends who stayed in New York during the pandemic, all of them came out like light years ahead of if, the, if that hadn't happened. Because in a lot of ways, it makes sense. It's like the culling of everything. So when everybody leaves, whoever's left are the only ones to work on stuff. I think that goes,
0: that, that goes without saying, for the most part, even in the comedy community, like we were all forced to, okay, now do some outdoor shows, do Zoom shows. This is uncomfortable. We have to make more videos. We have to realize that if you're not performing every single night, you got to kind of adapt to that. What's something that maybe within like the last since 2020 has really changed in the art world. If, if you've seen anything, um, you know, well, one out. of the
1: things that, and this is what led us to the creation of our gallery too, is that, you know, basically a lot of smaller and middle, uh, like smaller middle tier galleries went out of business during the pandemic. So that took a lot of the ecosystem out of the art world. So you have like the, the blue chip galleries that everybody knows by, you know, their single name monikers, you know, it's like Zwerner, Kagosian, okay. Hauser and Wirth. and, those businesses are recession proof, right? Like they have such deep pockets and coffers that they can just sit here and never sell another piece for fifty years.
0: Is that because they <laughs> would potentially represent an artist and a painting that costs maybe a million dollars, and then they make money off they that? They don't
1: really build careers; they find careers that are already budding. If that makes sense. Okay. So, in the ecosystem of the art world, smaller galleries are typically the one who take chances on younger artists, emerging artists, people who've been overlooked you know, smaller galleries can, uh, you know, are the ones who often are leading those charges. Bigger galleries often kind of wait until people have those sales records where they can look at them as an investment and, you know, kind of that financial side of the business. Yeah. And so they don't really, a lot of the major galleries with exception of, you know, some of them, a lot of them don't really build careers as much as they kind of watch so- someone who's already budding, get in at the right time and then <laughs> help build. Right. So they open up institutions for people. They get them great collectors. They expand them to a global network. But the
0: culture club is really building artists, correct?
1: That's the whole goal. So we've shown 285 artists in the three years, almost three years we've been open. Oh,
0: So how many artists are in the gallery at a particular time?
1: 10 to 12 is probably, like, average. And
0: it's just one
1: piece of theirs? Usually, we have a fairly large space, so it's just about 2,000 square feet. Okay. And so it's deceptively big. You know, right now in the show, it's uh, there's you, any show could have between 20 to 60 pieces. Okay. So we've had full-scale murals that we brought in and put on the walls. So it's a really, you know, compatible space for whatever the vision of any show would be. Um, but also, you know, I think when we, when we show artists, we want to, we want everything to be cohesive. So it's less about how many pieces an artist has in a show and more about the show making sense. And so one of the things that we've been really fortunate to do with the culture club is hand the reins of kind of, uh, curatorial duties over to the curators that come in and propose to us. So people bring in their roster of artists. So how does that
0: look just before you get on? So a
1: curator comes in and they say, Hey, I've got this great proposal for a show. I would like love to have a
0: great client, or no,
1: they typically will be like, I work with let's say XYZ artists, and I've been really trying to put together a show for them and having a hard time finding a space. To tell you, traditionally, curators who are finding a space typically would have to pay for the space outright or have an arrangement in place where they get a percentage from the sale. And so, by taking out the overhead of a gallery. And taking out the financial side of, you know, we don't handle transactions. The culture club does not sell the work. The artists sell it. The curators help manage it for the artists at times. But the culture club just is outside of that. Because our whole thing is the exhibition side of it. We want people to be able to get eyes on their work, to get their work out there. And it's really about the art of it, you know. Because ultimately the thing that I think that's finicky about the art world and art is that you're taking two things that are diametrically opposed. Making money and being creative. <laughs> like the, the, it, there's very little overlap on those. Funny.
0: Yeah. Even in comedy, it's kind of the same yeah, way. Yeah.
1: Because it's like earnesty. It's hard to come by. Yes. You know, integrity, it's hard to come by. And so I think with us, like that's what we're really trying to find are like the, the people and the artists and the, where the values are aligned, where it's creativity, sharing creativity, sponsoring creativity, because that just blossoms, you know, by helping these 285 artists, we've had a hundred thousand visitors. So we've had people from all over the world come in, it's the World Trade Center. And you know, so having that amount of traffic, I have no idea the impact we've had. You know, and, and I I have can't really put a number I have anecdotes. I mean, I have moments where I was like, wow, this really means something. Like, yeah. You're doing something that means something.
0: So if somebody were to come into the culture club though and purchase a piece that's on the wall, how does that go?
1: Typically they'll reach out to Clayton or myself or whoever one of our gallery assistants who's sitting in the gallery and we will always directly connect the dots. So we'll either put together an email or say, hey, this is the contact info of the artist, or in some cases the curator, and then they manage their sale independently. This sounds great and phenomenal for artists. What's the incentive for you guys? Hmm. Uh, I think it's our passion for what we love. Like you you're talking about
0: anecdotally, <clears throat> you don't know how much money you made, but you know, it could be... Multiple billions, you know?
1: Well, and even outside of the money, it's like we've created opportunities where there weren't. And I think that to me is more exciting because we've been able to uh, have digital campaigns all over the whole World Trade Center where artists were able to show their work on those screens. You know, we've had some really cool activations. And I think for us, my brother and I eat, sleep, breathe, like all of it art. You know, that's from the time I get up to the time I go to bed, art is infusing itself in my life but i'm also like a, a, a immensely curious person so like if i walk outside and i la- i watch the way shadows hit different objects or if i watch like the the trees blowing simple things fascinate me so i'm i, I think for my brother and myself we were just kind of tired of seeing like new york emptying out people not supporting artists a lot of people who say they're supporting artists are just building their brand you know and we wanted to just basically be like no like this is the right way to do it and we looked at each other and we were like okay, this is going to be really hard to sustain. You know, we're like, how do you sustain something? Well, we have a sweetheart deal with our, with our developer who gave us the space at a very reasonable rate. And we worked out, you know, my brother and I volunteer all of our time for the Culture Club to date. Um, and then we officially became a nonprofit. So now we're trying to figure out how to take in donations, fundraise, and make it into something that's a scalable model yeah. beyond just New York City potentially places like Los Angeles, London. You know, we've had conversations to that effect because the model itself is low overhead, high yield. You know, basically if you build it, artists will come and infuse it with life and just creating the platform makes it like that so
0: yeah and are you doing pop-ups right now so you were at basil right
1: yeah we've done quite a few uh activations and things like that we had a space in midtown that we've been curating uh related to the louise nevelson chapel which if you've never gotten to see that that's a really phenomenal room where is that um it's in the city core building so back when city core was trying to build their new building on 49th and madison mm-hmm. uh they basically, or 49th and Lex, they basically had to make a deal with the church. And the church, St. Peter's, sold air rights and enabled them to build above them. But in exchange, That's they created- That's New York
0: City real estate shit if you don't know about air rights, by the way. <laughs> Look it up! Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, right, right. Yeah,
1: no, of course. And so basically they had to sell it and make it so that it was a public space for people. And they've hosted art shows there for the last 50, 60 years. In fact, some of the first shows there were put on by Elaine de Kooning. Uh, Willem de Kooning's wife. Okay, so it's a it's a really special place, and there's this chapel in there. The artist Louise Nevelson, who's renowned, just phenomenal artist, great work. But she designed the entire chapel, all of it the the pews, the walls, everything. You know, it's just one of those places that like you go in there and it's transcendent. It's beautiful.
0: Do you have a favorite artist right now?
1: Uh, maybe someone living or dead. You know, Uh, let's go living. Right, I know. I feel like we can do both. Yeah, let's do that. Um, it's funny because someone asked my brother the other question the other day, and he just that question. He started rattling off. But yeah, I feel like that's an artists. annoying
0: question too for someone <laughs> to ask. Really. You. But we're on a podcast, dude. So, so
1: I think it's super insightful, you know, because yeah. like one of the questions, that I, and I'm gonna I'll pivot back there in a second, but I think you'll <laughs> like this. So one of the things about um, you know if you're ever at a stagnant room of conversation, I always like to ask people like you know if you could come back as any animal, what would you come back as? And you can come back on that. You can think about it because I feel like these questions have incredible insight.
0: Uh, but Yeah, because like you'll, you'll maybe know more about well, me depending on what animal I say. And some
1: people and some people want to be a lion. Oh, hell yeah.
0: i <laughs> to be a freaking butterfly lion, dude. Yeah.
1: <laughs> a lion with butterflies. Floating
0: it. Like, uh, with, the, with the eagle uh, <laughs> this noise. This lion
1: has really small wings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Literally. <laughs> It yeah. might be kind of frustrating. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Just be a predator, but being so soft.
1: Now, would you be the lion size with wings small or big wings and small lion?
0: I think, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I got to think about griffin. that. So yeah. you want to be a griffin? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got it. Harry got Potter. It. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so I feel like that's the same thing with artists, right? Like if you ask my brother, he talks about like David. Uh, he talks about uh, Michelangelo, Raphael. You know what's funny? He might not have even said David. I love David. He loves David, but like, he's very much like opinionated on what is critical in art. And for him, people like Rembrandt, Vermeer, uh, these people painted feelings, you know, they were able to paint whatever they wanted, but it's accompanied by an emotion. And a lot of people who don't really participate in art the way that we do, I would say kind of can see something that's done photorealistically and be like, oh, that's incredible. And it is, but it's not the same thing as a piece that like transcends your emotions and brings you to tears or makes you feel feelings that uh, are just extraordinarily powerful. And my brother, I would say, has those experiences regularly. He gets goosebumps. He gets you know chills around art. It's rare for wow. me to have that moment. And when I have it, I'm like, oh, my God, this is like. This is something.
0: And to talk about artists that would be dead and alive, do you yeah, get, so, you get so, like that around those? I'll say this, like,
1: uh, yeah, it really depends. Like, I've been in some, so Keith Haring is one of my heroes. I just, as a New Yorker, like, I remember seeing his work in the city. You know what I mean? Like, out and about. And, like, I just feel like that's such a cool little, like, moment in life to, like, ha- to, going back to graffiti and going back to that is, like, he was an artist of the people. You know, he, I, I, I uh, met one of his old barbers recently, and he said he traded a leather jacket. Uh, to the barber for a few haircuts. You know, he's like that kind of dude where like he knew the power of his work. He knew the power of what he was doing. And uh, one of his best pieces is actually at St. John the Divine on 110th or 111th Street. And it's this beautiful altarpiece, And it was one of the last pieces he ever made. Um, and the other thing about Keith Haring that's like a fun fact and super cool is his studio is still right on uh, Great Jones and Broadway. Okay. So if you walk by, just like in the middle of the block, there's like a fitness place next door you look in the lobby and the whole lobby is painted with his, with his murals and the foundation is still there. Hey. I've never been, but I, I'll get there. Yeah. You got to go. And then the other artist that always, th- I think about a lot is Roy Lichtenstein.
0: Yeah. Um, I, some of his, um, oh, I cool. guess like, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know. What's a replica replica. Yeah. replica right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like his stuff. Oh, they're I great. I like his stuff. They're yeah. great. Yeah. So
1: uh, I had the fortune of visiting his studio a number of years ago. Where's that? Uh, it was in, uh, I think it's like, Perry Street and like, uh, like Greenwich Ave or something like that. It's in the West Village. And they just recently, I believe, gave it to the Whitney Museum. And so his studio was like this gorgeous townhouse with like a bookshelf that you would open up like Batman to go into the studio. And his studio was left the way he left it, which was extraordinary just to see like his meticulousness, like his process. But also just like this amazing... It's right across from Westbeth. Do you know the artist housing down there? No, no, no. Okay, yeah, Westbeth, it's like... Uh, they've ha- helped create housing for artists for decades. And so he was like right across the street, basically. What do you think
0: about Banksy? The, Res- the, respect. The New York We've legend, got a funny right? Banksy
1: story. <laughs> Give us a pee, Gads. <laughs> So, you know, the question is, who's Banksy? Who the thoughts, hell right? is Banksy? People have thoughts. I personally am like, eh, Do you I like thoughts? the work. Well, I don't know who it is. There's like a lot of theories out there. But the thing that was really funny is I could have found out and totally missed it because of how chaotic my schedule is. So my brother and I were going to the triennial at the new school. Or the new museum, sorry. And the new museum is just on, like, uh, over in the Bowery area. Is that an exhibit, the triennial? Yeah, every three years they have it. That's one of those octogenarian triennial oh, shit. All right. sommelier moments. Yes, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, in any event, uh, we were going there and we were in a rush. So we were late, uh, perpetually late. I apologize to my grandfather. You were early today? You know, I texted you because I was like, hey, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. I
0: appreciate the time updates, man. Sometimes with comics, we're not all, or some some other comics are not so great on time. So I appreciate
1: (laughs) it. Yeah, no, I mean, professionally, I'm always on time. But, uh, you know, in the sense of like life and especially in New York, I feel like I squeeze that extra thing in each day. And that extra thing in cost me to be five minutes here, five minutes there, 10 minutes here, but I'm always considerate. You know, I think that's the key. Like as long as you text people, as long as you keep them posted and don't just like show up late and like, you know, diva it out, you know, it's like, no, everyone's time is valuable. And we all are like in New York for a reason. So like, I try to be respectful of that. But so we were running late back to the triennial. And, uh, I see the mural on Bowery and Houston being uh, painted. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I stopped to take a photo. My brother goes, we don't have time to take a photo. Come on, we got to go. And it ended up the next day. It was Banksy. And he was doing his like huge uh, tour of New York. But nobody knew who it was. It was just at the some time, guy painting. At the time, nobody knew what was going on. It was all these hash marks. And I remember being like, oh, that's pretty cool, you know? And he did, like, a New York City takeover where yeah. he had, like, a truck that, like, came around with a bunch of pigs in the side of it, like, you know, maquettes. And, like, I think he's awesome. Like, I think, like, his work is cool. I think the ethos behind it is cool. What,
0: yeah. What's the story behind him, though? As like, far as I, I can all, tell, why it's Why do we like, all care?
1: Uh, you know, I think a lot of it is the messaging, you know? It's like the, the iconic image of the protester with the flowers. It's kind of like that... It's like that 70s photo of, like, the flower going into the tip of the gun. It's like... There's, it's like uh, Kendall Jenner and Pepsi. You know? yeah. <laughs> Save the world, Kenny. But yeah, but basically, you know, it's uh, I th- I feel like the I- imagery and iconography that he's created internationally is up there with the with the best, you know. And I and I feel like there's a lot of humor in his work. Uh, there's seriousness in the work. There's activism in it, you know. And also, I think what I love about him and what I love about artists like Ai Weiwei, who full disclosure I met on Monday, was like so cool to meet him. I've actually had a week of meeting two of my art heroes. Oh, dope! I met Frank Stella last night, and are, are you going to be working with them, like Culture Club Wise? Well, or? so my brother actually uh, helped, and we helped put together an exhibition with Silverstein Properties uh, in Tower Seven of the World Trade Center, and it's all about the history of art at the World Trade Center. And so that actually just opened last night. It was the culmination of six months of hard oh, work wow, from nice. dozens Congrats, of people. Dope. Thank you, thank you, and uh, it was it was very well attended. It was such a sweet exclamation point. Um, And in that process, you know, one of the things we had to do was tell the story of the art that's been at the World Trade Center. And so when the Twin Towers, you know, back in, uh, let's say like the 90s, they had quite a lot of artists who were in residence already there. So there's a history of it down there, which I find awesome. Um, And so basically, you know, in that, in, the, in that space and in that kind of uh, show that we put on, it was all about telling the story and weaving the narrative of like, these were the artists who had works in these lobbies before, and these are works that were destroyed, and these are works that you know, were in the collection. And then these are works of artists who are here now as part of the rebuilding and part of the resurgence and the renewal down there. And so, um, you know, for us, I think that, that that moment, so in a way, I got to show Frank Stella, one of the cool things we got to do is make a reproduction of his two pieces that were lost in, in, in the attacks. Uh, and so we blew him up huge. And he, just to see the look on his face when we were sharing it with him, it was oh like, it's like you saw an old friend. That's so cool. You know? So like in a way, yeah. Like I, you know, I, I had a really sweet moment being like, this is, you know, come back to life in a way.
0: What makes an artist pop? You know, like people talk about the struggling artists, you know, that go through years. And then I forget the painter or uh, artist who died and then was, fam- who was it? Uh, well, there's well I mean, people, there are probably a lot. But, there's a lot, but there's, also, there's a lot. There's
1: also there's you know there's nothing better for an artist's career than dying. That's number one. Yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy. Yeah, yeah I definitely mean, fixed commodity. Yeah. Uh. But like
0: what is it? Is it one painting that makes them pop that everyone's like, oh, this is the one after you know 20 years think? of their work. This is it.
1: I I think that most importantly, it's stylistically being recognizable. I think people Mm -hmm. uh, like to see things that they can recognize. So with like a you know, Picasso, Matisse, you know, these guys, you just see their work and immediately, you know, you know what I mean? Like, there's no question about it. Um, Anna Wyant, you know, her work is like that. You see her work. She's a, a rock star in the art world. Uh, just super she's cool. young, right? Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. I think I've she's awesome. Her. Okay.
1: I have photographed her before, you know, I've, so I've, I'm working on a project now photographing a lot of my peers um, because I feel like I have this really fortunate access to artists and I feel like I've been let in, you know, and I'm like, oh, like, what are you like? You gotta, gotta document this. And so it kind of started during the pandemic, and then it's just completely evolved where it's like a consistent thing where I get to take photos of my friends and photos of artists. And so I'm compiling a, a book basically about artists in New York in this time period. And so the whole idea is that artists like anybody are like uh, couldn't be more of a variety, you just, know?
0: Yeah. To to just go back to uh, what makes an artist pop, uh, an artist who has. Stylistic behavior that they repeat over and over, and people start to recognize is that kind of what makes a painting that's super valuable that just looks like, oh, I could do that?
1: You know, that's a good question. You know, ultimately, uh, it's like beauty's in the eye of the beholder, so is, yeah. you, so is value. Okay. And it's all about perception. And I think, like, when I see that you could get a masterpiece from the 1600s or 1700s for half the price of a contemporary piece, I'm always a little baffled myself. Because to me, just like the idea of like a relic of time is already so valuable. You know what I mean? So um, I, I think it's an enigma for everybody, you know, what makes work sell for the prices they do. Yeah. But what it really comes down to is it's kind of you get a, a room full of 10 collectors together. They like somebody's work. They've just set the market. So whatever they say it's worth, yeah. it's worth.
0: And setting the market, it just seems like art pieces just continuously keep going up and up and up. Is that just the the nature of art? Like if somebody paid 500000 for it, they're expecting to get at least a million for it. Like, how does that work? You
1: know, people collect for different reasons. Yeah. Um, my brother and I both kind of like to joke that we have collections we couldn't ever afford because everything we've bought has like totally... Like we're we're very fortunate, but we also have no intention of ever selling a single piece from our collection. Ah, interesting. And because, you, like we buy it because we love it.
0: And where is your collection? Like at uh, it's your at apartment? Our house, yeah, all so tight. we have it all like
1: our walls are covered. It has a lot of my my work my photos, my brother's paintings. And you just are insured and lots of, through it? lots of others, yeah. Lots of okay. others uh works on the walls. So Nice. Too. You know, and some of the better pieces are in storage, unfortunately, because we, we just don't have the space, you know? Is there
0: like a special art storage place or you just put it in one of those 999 uh, have like flat files.
1: No, we have like flat files that you can lay flat. It's like stuff that's not framed. Okay, um, And so those are like a little treasure trove of like, you know, cool prints that, you know, one of the fortunes I think of working with artists is artists are quite generous people. You know, typically I would say that there's a lot about artists that is uh, geared towards giving. Because in a lot of ways, like you're giving yourself into your work. You're you're putting you're exposing oh, sorry. You're exposing yourself in your work. You're putting I know you're, I know you're a comedian.
0: <laughs> nice, dude. You laid that one up for us. Yeah. Speaking of exposing yourself, enjoy this picture yeah, of me. I imagine. This is all scripted. Yes. You know?
1: <laughs> I have a good memory. But no, so so Um, But, you know, back to what makes an artist pop and, you know, those things, I think it's the shell that everyone's trying to crack. And what I would say the biggest things I've noticed if I were to, like, reverse engineer what makes artists successful, because that's what I've been trying to do my whole life. (laughs) You know, if I had to say, like, one thing I've been thinking about is, like, how do I continue to crack that shell? You know, how do I get closer into the rooms I want to be in? How do I get my work in the institutions I want them to be in? How do I get them in the hands of the people who appreciate it and don't view it as just like a financial instrument? Um, because I think that's one of the gnarly sides of the art world is that unfortunately popping doesn't last forever.
0: Yeah. Was, do you think we have any artists right now who are continuously peaking as each of their works goes well, towards the public?
1: There's a few kind of things I would say on that. One is um, of course, right. But I would never name names because one of my uh, it's not McCarthyism, but, <laughs> but like one of my things is like, if you decide to be an artist I already think that that's the hardest decision in life period. I don't need to be involved in like speculation on that. You know what I mean? Like I respect the hell out of anybody who's decided to be a a creative, a comedian, an artist. I actually think comedy is the hardest gig of all the creatives. Like I've thought about this because you know, it's like (laughs) we can go down that rabbit hole, but like in, in terms of like art, you know, ultimately you have limited time to make a mark and that mark is not guaranteed to last. So the whole thing is consistency. A lot of people have great energy that keeps it going. And I think, you know, I saw something recently. Um, I forget where, which actor said it. It was one of the guys from The Office, which I, I did not really watch. I'm sorry. But everyone's like, you didn't watch that? Rain Wilson. That's who it was. Okay. And he said he had this acting coach who, who, like, grabbed him by the arm and was like, don't ever give up. Like, don't stop. If, if you stop, that's when they win that's what everybody's telling you. No, you can't succeed. You can't win. So I think it's that idea that no matter what, you're going to keep on trudging forward because it's a commitment. And it's not something you decide like when you're 18, like I'm going to be an artist or when you're 23, like maybe I'll be an artist. It's like, you're born an artist, yeah. I was going you know, and it's, it's like, it's waiting to come out of you. You know, it's like you, you can't hold it in. You could, I think, you know, one of the pieces of advice, a few of my good friends, uh, one of my good friends, uh, Adam, works in uh, in film at HBO, and he was just saying he had a great mentor, and his mentor always, you know, basically would tell him, you know, if you could imagine yourself doing anything else at all, go do that, right? And I think that's great advice because, like, I couldn't imagine myself sitting at a desk five days a week. I just couldn't. I couldn't imagine it. And I respect people who do, and I respect all the reasons people have to hustle and grind and do what they have to do. But I've had to hustle and grind and I've done all sorts of paying the dues and I'm still paying dues. You know, I'm about to be 35 and I feel like I'm just getting started. You know, like I'm I'm excited for the next 35, maybe the next 70. Who knows?
0: Do you see yourself and your brother opening more culture clubs, giving more opportunities to artists. Oh, absolutely. Is that kind of the, but also we want,
1: we want it to be kind of an itinerant idea as well where we could host exhibitions in places that provide a space for, you know, a a moment in time and that we could potentially have collaborations with different brands and, and bring them in to just like shine light on artists. Because I think, you know, the thing is, is the artists who are showing in these blue chip galleries, they're already fine, you know, and there is a certain burden. Let me say this: with being a successful artist, like that, like that level of like you know selling works for half a million or a million. At, What's a name like that who's alive right now? Ah, uh, who would have the burden? I would say you know for me. Good question, because I, I it might be easier for me to say artists who are who are like no longer alive. Because I feel like I wouldn't want to assume the burden for people. Sure. But yeah, but I think, I think I think one dead. of the things that. Uh, I have always worried about is that, like, with an artist, if you hit something, like, if you make something amazing, then there's almost like the expectation that, like, that's what you do, right? So, like, if you make, uh, let's say, let's say Warhol only was known from, like, his, his, uh, his, like, silkscreen portraits, right? Then, if that's all you do, then it becomes like any other job, like a cobbler for a shoe, it becomes rote. Right. And I think that as an artist, the challenge is to always like stoke your creativity. So again, you're fighting between like having to make money, make a living, have a career, you know, appease a lot of people, but then like speaking to what you want to speak to, have to speak to what is important that you get off your chest, you know? So there's this really delicate balance of like, do you want to just become somebody who makes the same thing over and over again? Yeah. Or do you want to be somebody who like takes chances and like, you know some of it falls flat on its face but like who cares you You know know?
0: who um, i I can think of uh i guess just like musical artist wise like drake for the most part like i don't know if it's that related to art itself but um i think just like you've seen him evolve over each uh each album that he puts out and people hate it for the first two weeks and then they learn to love it they're like oh this is this type this is that so
1: i love that you said that because like uh, full, I like Drake for what it's worth. Like I think his music, like I like a lot of the early stuff. Like I remember he had a song on uh what is the first album that was originally like released on uh like datpiff.com. Do you know that website?
0: I vaguely remember that. Okay, the, they the would past. release like yeah. mixtapes and it was yes. best I
1: ever had. Sure. And then like one of the songs was, like November 18th, that's my birthday, and I was like, Oh, this guy's cool. Oh on the thirteenth! Hey, go, Scorpio hey, Bruce So basically he was on the cover of Double uh, XL magazine with a friend of ours from high school. They were launching at the same time. Charles Hamilton, who's one of the most Charles cool, Hamilton, of course, from Brooklyn. Ain't nothing the, like a Brooklyn. So he girl. went to bars. SLBs. Oh, cool! He's awesome.
0: Back in the day, okay. that guy's a
1: genius. Like Beyond, he's one of those minds where I remember seeing him and being like, "I wish I could treat music the way he does." You know, I love music, love, love, love music, but I don't really make it i don't play you know big fred again fan Mm -hmm. you know i just like really respect people who who are like kings of their craft but also people like him who were just like born for it like they're naturals like he his mind just worked differently than everyone else's and so you know charles hamilton was on the same cover it was like asher roth you know names that nobody talks about anymore right i love college (laughs) who did it (laughs) <laughs> but, but uh anyway uh maybe not you bro you're
0: there for a minute
1: <laughs> i visited yeah okay fair enough you did visit yeah i did a short stint um uh, but basically you know drake and going back to that i was wondering you know he's part of the machine right and once you're in the machine it's like bieber right like bieber doesn't i don't keep up with bieber i don't listen to bieber i, I know that at some point he started off as like a talented young kid and usher picked him up and the rest was history but like you start to notice that a lot of people, there's like a certain complacency that comes with success, because it's like I did all this. It's like Snoop Dogg, right? Like I love Snoop, but like he hasn't put out a song since like Drop It Like It's Hot, mm-hmm. right? Like that's mm-hmm. kind of like the last like song that was like a big Snoop song. And in the '90s, he you couldn't have had a bigger artist. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Tennessee Williams. Um, I think he's just one of the great playwrights of our. The Glass time. Menagerie. Great play. Yeah. Streetcar Named Azar, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, Stella! Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fresh Marlon Brando. And, uh, cool. So basically, there's a, you should look it up after this, and everyone should too, but there's a great uh, piece of prose he wrote called The Tragedy of Success. And it was basically how depressed he was after all of his rock star success. And I have a few friends who... Uh, Even are, as a playwright? Well, let me say this. I have a few friends who are in film, and one of them who's quite well-known in film, I'll, will remain nameless, but told me... You'll never meet more depressed people than celebrities, and that stuck with me. You know, and when I was younger, um, I had a job. You know, where I was working playing sports with kids right after I graduated college. I, my mom was like, "You need a job," and I was like, "I've only tutored and worked at Lacoste." Mm-hmm. And <laughs> she was like, "Well, just get a job." And so I put an ad in the paper. And this family with kids that their dad was old, and these three they had three year old sons, and I played sports with them. Sweet family, lovely kids, and basically they would take me with them to all the nice places. And I remember being in all the nice places and seeing how miserable everyone was and thinking, yeah, this isn't it. You know, and that was at a time when I was a little more like glitz and glamor and like had to keep up with the appearances at GW and like kids were driving to school and like, you know, Lamborghinis and Ferraris and like getting tables at like 17, 18 (laughs) years old. (laughs) And I remember thinking I could like keep up, you know, like I was working my ass off. And I just couldn't, I was like, and then it hit me after like I had that work experience and going to all the Shishi clubs in Palm Beach and the Hamptons and all around. And once you've seen it, you're like, oh, it's like, I'd rather talk to the dude like picking up the dishes or like the guy who's like hanging at the door working security because half the people in those rooms are just looking for what they can, you know, who they can work, you know, what they can get out of somebody. And so I had this like really unique experience where it kind of like shifted my perspective of like, what matters, you know, and like where to put your attention. And so, like, I'm not driven by success. I'm not driven by money. I'm not driven by, like, it just probably sh- circles back to the whole, like, what do you expect to get out of the culture club? Yeah. I'm driven by impact. I'm driven by, you know, actually doing something where I want to leave a, a lasting mark on art, culture, the world. Like, I have very, very lofty aspirations. And I like that because it's kind of that idea, like there's a great Bob Marley quote where someone asked him if he was rich. And he said, why am I rich? Because I have a lot of money? He said, no, I'm rich because I have my family, I have my health, I have my, you know, I have love. And I always, you know, I love that idea. He said, numbers, they only get bigger. So if you're driven by numbers, you're just going to keep chasing the bigger number. So that was like a real, you know, I had a degree in economics at 19. I, I, I also graduated in 2008, the height of the financial collapse. May, 2008, I was like, my backup plan became not a backup. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was like when Lehman, it was like all that crazy time. Uh And so I really kind of had to like dig deep and decide, you know, ultimately, and it's again, it's like, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to work in the creative space. I'm so lucky to feed that. Um, And I I love sharing little tidbits. And so I'll quote Maya Angelou as well. Uh, But she, she talked about how creativity is like a fountain. And it's not a fountain that runs out. It's actually a fountain that the more you use it, the more it flows. And she's one of my heroes. You know, I know why The Cage Bird Sings is just a phenomenal story of humanity, you know, of beauty despite trauma and tragedy. You know, she, so I always thought to myself, I said, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, if you've read it or if you kind of know the gist of it, but no, I don't. she suffered a really deep trauma at uh, four or five years old at the behest of her uh stepfather and she told her mother what had happened and the next day the guy was killed by her uncles okay and she didn't speak for the next year or two at all because she thought that her voice had caused it oh my and so that's why it's called i know why the caged bird sings you know and so her life became this mission of just fighting the good fight you know just like creativity at the forefront you know and there was this amazing exhibition at the new york public library which back to like museums and sleepers bryant park yeah bryant park which that building is extraordinary if you ever get to go they have like apparently like seven floors of stacks underneath oh wow it's an extraordinary building and they had this awesome exhibition of just like uh oddities and like things that were like they had like malcolm x's briefcase they had, like, an original Albrecht Durer, like, huge wall, like, lithograph. Like, they had all these, like, really cool stuff. And then one of them was her original manuscript for I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And it was just, like, a yellow notepad. You know? And I think that that, you know, so many, this is great advice for creatives, but, like, we all put impediments in our own way. And I think that, like, one of the things that, for me, I always think about is, like, we're electrical beings. So, like, our bodies firing, electro, you know, there's a, electrons moving throughout us. And electricity always takes the path of least resistance so we're by nature lazy now if you if you had to go fix you know if you have to go over there but you don't really have to go over there you're not going to do it so i kind of try to short circuit my my mind a lot where it's like i have the thought oh don't do it you're you, save it for later get onto it and then i just like slap myself busy yeah. and like get up and go So I, I think that way about a lot of things that like, you know, life is full of challenges. It's full of unpleasantries. It's full of things that like, you don't want to deal with, but by handling them with like grace and dignity and like having that attitude of like, uh, there's a great, uh, quote, uh, if it's good, good, if it's bad, good, you know, it's like that idea that like, it's very Buddhist. It's like, everything is good. It's for you. Right. Like every moment is part of the whole, um, yeah, I, I think that those perspectives, like I really admire a number of people, uh, as you can tell, like I, I pay attention to, you know, people who've done what I want to do. And I in a lot of ways, I pay attention to people who've done what I don't want to do too. Uh-huh. Because, you know, I read biographies on Rockefeller and Vanderbilt to be like, how did these guys become who they were? And then I saw, and I didn't finish either book. I got to the point where I got the information and I was like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> You know what I mean? And I could share those anecdotes at a later date, but like yeah. fascinating, you know, fascinating because I think our culture, and it comes back to this like kind of full circle conversation of like our culture is hyper-focused on celebrity, hyper-focused on materialism, hyper-focused on money, right? And at the end of the day, it's like money is a tool, right? It's not the end. It's not the goal. It's, it's like, you know what I mean? So... It's like anything where, you know, I liken it to like fire, right? Like fire can burn houses or it can make a meal, right? Water, you can drown or you can swim. We live in this world where we're on screens all the time. We pro- I wake up and look at my screen. I go to bed and look at my screen. And I'm addicted to my phone. Who isn't? It's the primary resource you use every day. It is such a phenomenal tool. But you have to be in charge of it, right? And so I think one of the things that I really am like... Very fortunate, I feel like at this age to have a grasp on is materialism. I wear this basically as my like uniform. Yeah, dude. yeah, same. Yeah, we didn't plan this out either. <laughs> yeah, dude, we're all Again, black, not not like New, New York. Yeah, yeah, very New York of us, dude. All <laughs> yeah. black and the
0: white socks. Hopefully, yeah. I'm wearing two different same. So- okay, yeah, there same you socks. Go. <laughs>
1: I'm good today. It's funny the IES was cut off. I was like, Is he <laughs> yes, we wearing different socks? <laughs> no, it I, says Eats. I was like, Dude, Hilarious, dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically I feel like by not wanting, by not like desiring, you know, I don't need to have a big house or fancy car or I don't need to have people come up to me and compliment my outfit. None of that does anything for me. You know, I you're, you're a laugh because I've, I've really touched on the spectrum of like influences in my life and people. And one of them is actually a, a Catholic saint. I grew up Roman Catholic Um, and my mom, you know, I had a really tough period of my life with asthma. Like I've really hard, hard, like I had like seven years of daily asthma attacks. Yeah. It was like, it was was brutal. And, uh, my mom, like I was always kind of digging deep and trying to figure out like why me, you know? And again, this was from 25 to 32. So like prime years of your life to be having an inhaler on you at all times. And it was just, it was tough. You know, I I think it molded me in a way that is probably why I have a lot of the perspectives I have. Like, would I want to do it again? I I don't think I could. You know what I mean? I got very lucky where my asthma more or less like went into remission, so to speak, where it's under control. And it took a lot to get there. But in that journey, my mom was really like prominent and, you know, just sharing like all these philosophers and thinkers. And so back to the Catholic saint, there were two, there was St. Teresa's and they're both St. Teresa's. And they both just had, I read both of their biographies. You know, very, I love biographies. And, you know, they both kind of have these um, outlooks on life and, a, uh, and outlooks on, like, how to go about living a fulfilled life, how to, like, feed your soul, that resonated with me regardless of denomination. What's, like, an example of that? Um, you know, they, I, so a good one is St. Is, uh, Teresa of Lisieux of The Little Flower. She was a French saint who died in her, her young 20s and suffered immensely. And, uh, you know, she actually, I couldn't wrap my head around this one, but she prayed for suffering because she wanted to take it on. And I was like, ah, you lost me there, sister. (laughs) But before that, one of the things I loved was that she talked about all of people like flowers in God's garden. And she said, you know, everybody wants to be the rose, but the wildflower should just be happy being with the wildflower. And the lavender might be the best smelling and it needs to be happy being the lavender. And the lily has, you know, so she started basically likening us to just basically understanding who you are as like the first step of like living that life, right? Where everybody wants to be the rose nowadays, right? Everybody wants to be the Instagram star of like, you know, and to be honest with you, I've watched it with Ai Weiwei. I watched it with Frank Stella. I watched it with, uh, there's another young artist who had a show, Devon Rodriguez, who's like a rock star in, at UTA, uh, the most followed artist on social media channels. He's got like 100 million plus followers. Mm-hmm. He started by doing portraits of people on the subway and giving them their portraits and TikToking it. The power of TikTok. Now, I watched all of these people at openings and at all of the things that I recently, and they basically get paraded, right? They, and it's, it's part of the job. I, I get paraded, you know? There are times when I go to rooms and I just kiss babies and shake hands, you know, like a politician, and I don't have that in me. I'm not a politician. I want every interaction to be earnest. Like, I want to have, like, the real conversations. I don't want to say the, hey, how you doing? Take a selfie. But it's part of the job, like, who cares? I, I have plenty of great selfies of cool people. And I'm very lucky where I've, I've, I've uh, met, like, these people who are, like, titans of industry, and they were, like, the coolest people. It was the ones who were, like, middle, middle tier who were, like, I'm not taking a photo with you. The ones, like, Oprah, you know, they were, like, yeah, I'll take a photo. And I think that's so cool because it's, like, it showed me that it's not about, you know, that, hierarchy or structure of like you can't be around me you can't be you touch this so to speak it's so unhealthy if you if you live and die by likes and if you live and die by clicks because then it becomes so disingenuous and that's one of my biggest fears in life that for any reason whatsoever i lose the passion i have i don't think it's going to happen i mean i made it this far yeah dude. (laughs) like i don't think it's going to happen but Uh like it's you know one of the things and this is back to the other St. Teresa you like how I can tie things together yeah right? dude I'm loving it I don't fully trail off <laughs> but uh, the other St. Teresa of Avila who's a fascinating figure she was like one of the foremost like uh, theologians of like the Catholic Church like the first like actually respected woman in the church
0: is theologian a, it's a plural of theologist
1: uh, maybe it's a euphemism theolo- theolo-
0: <laughs> damn dude you're killing us yeah, with I'm the words we it. love it we love it <laughs>
1: Um, and you know, you know, just thinking about her, they they said she had levitated in front of groups of like Yo. dozens of people. Yeah, I'm like this Love is that. fascinating. That's dope, like, yeah, I'm I'm open minded. You know, right. I've I've had some pretty spiritual experiences and pretty paranormal experiences and like things where I'm like, Okay, there's something else at play here. You know, I don't know what's all going on. Yeah. I don't know how it all works, but like energy is real. Uh, you know, going off of vibes, if you feel a bad vibe, it's like you feel it, you know what I mean? We're animals. At the end of the day, when the hair stands up on the back of your neck or you get goosebumps, you didn't decide to do either of those, right? So like a big part of what we have is like this like sixth sense. And, you know, it is it is kind of funny because now that I like brought her up and like went off on that little tangent, I'm like, why did I like bring bring her up again? Um, I'll get back to that. It'll come to me because now I totally did trail off. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's come back to that.
0: When you look at a piece of art, or maybe you were talking about your brother uh, briefly about like getting goosebumps looking at art, is that something like is that the artist coming out through the the painting? What is it the colors? It's the the vibe. And by the way, it just
1: came to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so it's basically the idea. She talks about searching your soul, and she compares the soul to a castle. And she says, as you go through the castle, it it has seven layers. That's at least what she said and on the outer layers where most people live they never really soul search they don't question who they are they don't question what their purpose is they don't question why they are angry all the time they don't question why they're sad all you know whatever it may be and that's not you know i think there are choices we all make that can make our lives easier and i think there are things that we're born with that people struggle with and i totally respect and acknowledge all of that but i think that there's a lot of things that we can do to combat and to to give ourselves the best chance at a healthy mindful life and so she always said you know once you continue to go through those layers of the soul when you're on the outside the lizards will come and nibble at your feet and the mosquitoes will bite you and she's like you get another layer in and the lizards aren't there and then by the time you get all the way in that's when she says you're at like closeness with god yeah and she says once you get to that point whatever anyone says to you good bad indifferent is the same right it doesn't matter you could say, "Look at me and be like, hey, buddy.'" Or you could be like, "Wow, that's incredible." It's, it means the same thing to me if you really like boil it down because it's your opinion, right? And
0: which doesn't matter theoretically. Someone else's opinion, over, like we make know. it
1: matter, yeah. right? We care so much. And I, do you watch How to with John Wilson?
0: Yeah, I have. I watched the <laughs> um, like the beginning of the first episode of season two, but season one was phenomenal. I loved it.
1: Oh, so it good! Great. I love that guy. For those Thank of
0: you who don't know what we're talking about, like he will put a like a, a five second clip on a screen and then he'll describe it in a way that is related to that scene, but it's not exactly what's going on. Like a guy will be um, a street vendor in central park will be giving a hot dog to someone and he'll be talking over it and he'll be like, you know, it is always a good thing when you're giving out free food to people, but it's not free food. It's something like that to kind of describe it very vaguely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's like a New York documentarian with great humor.
0: Exactly. Yes. He's just like, he's,
1: he's observant and he's, he's got a great way of tying it all together. And one thing recently that really hit me as like a really good point of inflection was, uh, and I won't give away the last episode at all, but it's just about cryopreservation and people who pay to have their bodies frozen. Walt Disney, Ted Williams. Right. And so, I think that's the dumbest thing in the world. First of all, I wouldn't even want to come back after like after I've been frozen in a vat of water, you know, formaldehyde for decades, centuries, etc. true. But then I gave myself the mental prompt of, all right, let's assume that it's even possible. Big leap, okay? But let's assume it's possible. And you come back and you're in a room full of like people who look like you or don't look like you, whatever. And they're all looking at you, judging you. Would you care? Like, would you care what people in the future who you never met and you were popped into a room with them were like, oh, can you believe this is like how... Well, if
0: you're Ted Williams or Walt Disney, maybe you might care. Well, because their egos couldn't
1: be bigger, right? But I think that's the biggest thing to combat. Like, artists have egos. A healthy ego is like, there's no way around having an ego as a creative. Like, every creative has an ego. So I'm not saying that, like, you know, <laughs> that you can never truly overcome that. I mean, Buddhism thinks you can, but I think, like ego, you know, ego can serve you, but it can also hinder you. And I think one of the things is, is like a lot of people who've accomplished or achieved, they kind of feel like their opinion is more valuable than others. When at the end of the day, it's like, if you walk into a museum and you want to know about the art, you could ask the person walking around giving the tour, or you could ask the security guard because they're there every day Uh. listening to every tour. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. So, like, it's one of those things where, like, some of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life are taxi drivers.
0: Yeah, they know everything.
1: Yeah. And, they like, sometimes I start talking to them and it's like, I can tell they're not vibing. I'm like, all right, cool. I tried, but yeah, you know?
0: right. <laughs> like, yeah,
1: you're just trying to get through the day. Like, yeah. some of those dudes, I mean, they also inspire me, to be honest with you. I talk to so many of them, and the number of those guys who work six, seven days a week, 12, 15 hours, a lot of them, it kind of kicks me in the butt every time I think about it because I'm like, oh, like, anything that you're frustrated about, any of your problems, any of the things that are like weighing you down, pale in comparison to having to to suffer, you know, 40 years of sedentary lifestyle so your kids can have a better life. I respect that so much, you know? And I think that like, that's one of the things I admire. Like I admire hard work. I admire like passion, perseverance, but I also admire sacrifice. You know, people who are able to look outside of themselves, And say, hey, I'm doing this so my kid has a chance.
0: And we see that a lot in New York, you know, looking at small business owners who are at the deli seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year. You can really see it, you know, if you just take a second to the hardest working city on the planet.
1: There's no doubt about it. You know, one of the things I laugh about, you ask people, Oh, how are you doing? They go, Oh, I'm so busy. That's like, oh yeah, I breathe too. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if you're here and you're not busy, why are you here? (laughs) <laughs> for real.
0: Parker, this has really been a great episode, man. I appreciate you coming on the pod, dude, talking about Culture Club, talking about art and life in general. Before we get out of here, we're popping up your Instagram.
1: Cool. Come visit the gallery anytime, guys. We're down in uh, the Oculus, but you can enter any of the entrances to the Oculus underneath Tower 3 and Tower 4.
0: Love it. Parker, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Awesome. Guys, thanks, thanks so much time. for tuning in and listening. Check the link in this YouTube video. Get to a Ted Jones comedy show. And maybe, you know, you'll see Parker and I working together in some capacity. All right. Cool. That'd be super fun. Guys, thanks again. We'll see you soon. Peace.